his way to the center of the field. He got down on a knee, and for about the next 30 seconds, he silently prayed to the Lord, thanking the Lord for giving him the opportunity to pour into the lives of these young men on the football team. Now, Coach Kennedy, he would continue this tradition and this practice of prayer every game for the next several years, next seven years. And initially, he, he prayed by himself, but over time, some of the players noticed what he was doing, and they came out of their own volition and joined him in prayer. This continued for a couple games, and then the players began to invite the opposing team members to also come out and pray with them. And it was a, a beautiful picture of, of people uh, loving God and loving others. But then one day, at the beginning of the 2015 football season, one of the school administrators at Bremerton High School decided that Coach Kennedy's voluntary prayer in a public setting was completely unacceptable. Uh, an investigation was initiated, and ultimately Coach Kennedy was placed on paid administrative leave, and he was barred from participating in any capacity in the Bremerton football program because he had engaged in what the school deemed as overt public and uh, demonstrative religious conduct while still on duty as an associate coach. Coach Kennedy's crime, quietly, silently praying in public. Now, 7,500 miles to the west, in rural India, Kurdi, a young Hindu mother of two, heard the gospel at a church setting in a village uh, a couple miles away from her home village. And after hearing the gospel, God moved in her heart. She repented of her sins and received Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. When she returned to her own village, news had spread quickly regarding her conversion. Before long, Curdy was called before uh, the village elders, made to stand in the midst of the meeting and told to stop following Jesus. She refused. What followed were several more meetings, each one more intense than the prior one, each time Curdy is told that she needs to deny Jesus. And each time, Curdy refuses. Eventually, the villagers brought long bamboo sticks with them and threatened violence against her family. And out of fear, Curdy and her husband agreed to stop having these small church services in their home. But their hearts were so deeply in love with Christ that they were unable to keep that promise. Soon they started gathering quietly and secretly in their house on Sundays. A few other Christians would show up, and occasionally a pastor from another village would come along and lead them. But their secret meetings didn't remain secret for very long. 
Late one night, a, a group of men carrying ropes surrounded Curdie's house. They broke into her home. They grabbed her husband, tied him up, took him with them, locked Curdie in her own home. The men took Curdie's husband to a remote location where they tortured him in unthinkable ways and ultimately killed him. For the next day or two, Curdie made her way from village to village in search of her husband. She finally located his body. No one was arrested. There wasn't even an investigation. When she returned home to her village, the village leaders refused to allow her to bury her husband in the village cemetery. So Curdie took her husband's body to a plot of land outside of the village, and she buried him there. Curdie's crime and her husband's crime, repenting of their sins and receiving Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Now, according to Open Doors, which is a non-government organization that seeks to advocate on behalf of persecuted Christians around the world, they, in their statistics, uh, articulate that in the last year, 5,900 Christians have been killed for their faith. 5,100 churches and Christian buildings have been desecrated, burned down, vandalized. Another 4,800 Christians were unjustly arrested, detained, or imprisoned. But that doesn't tell the entirety of the story. Throughout the world, there are 360 million Christians that are living in countries where they experience high levels of persecution and discrimination. In North Korea alone, it is estimated that 50,000 to 70,000, 50,000 is the population of the city of Harrisburg, Christians are being held in the notorious system of North Korean prisons and labor camps. You see, persecution of Christians is real. It's spreading, and it is ultimately coming, and in some ways, like in the case of Coach Kennedy, has already come to America. So, what are we to do about that? How are we to prepare for that? What can we do to respond to it, to stand up against it? And that's what I want to talk about uh, this morning as we continue our study through the seven churches of the book of Revelation. If you have a Bible with you, if you would open up to Revelation chapter 2, we're going to look at verses 8 through 11. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, you might have an app on your phone. If you don't have a Bible or an app on your phone, there's Bibles on the tables around the room. If you don't own one, please take one with you. It is our uh, gift to you. The only thing that we ask is you actually use it and read it. Don't use it to prop open your door or to be a nice other book on the shelf, but actually use it to uh, have your life transformed by the powerful word of God. Revelation 2, 
verses 8 to 11. If you're able to stand, if you would do so in honor of God's word. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last, who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death. And I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Now, as Evan shared with you last week, uh, the book of Revelation is a, a letter which was penned by the Apostle John sometime in the early 90, or in the early 90s, as in the first century, not 1990s, which is what I would typically think of when I hear 90s. So, you know, think Roman Empire, not Nirvana, Destiny's Child, Garth Brooks, stuff like that. And it was written some 60 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, the Apostle John, he had been banished to this uh, small, rocky, desolate island in the Aegean Sea because of his faith, and it was called Patmos. And it was used by the, the Roman Empire as a, basically a slave labor prison camp, and there were mines uh, on the island. And it was there on Patmos that John, suffering as a criminal, most probably forced to work in those mines, that he received a, a vision from the risen Lord Jesus Christ that he ultimately wrote down in the form of a letter, a circular letter, that was sent through these seven churches in Asia Minor, which is now modern-day Turkey. And by the time that John had received the vision from Jesus, Severe persecution was well experienced and known throughout all of the Roman Empire against Christians. And this persecution came from, from two sources. The persecution came from the, the Jewish religious leaders who saw Christianity as a, a threat to their limited religious autonomy that they enjoyed under the Roman Empire. You see, the Roman Empire, they, they persecuted everyone who didn't worship the emperor except for the Jews because they had this agreement, basically, that as long as the Jews stayed under control, they could worship their God. But now the Christians have come along. They've caused problems within Judaism, and now the Jewish religious leaders are worried that, hey, this sweetheart deal that we got, well, it's not super sweetheart deal, but this reasonable deal that we've got is going to fall apart. But these Christians, they were also persecuted by the leaders of the Roman Empire who considered Christianity a, a direct threat to this pagan Roman emperor uh, worship that they experienced. And simply because their faith in Jesus Christ and their unwillingness to deny him, Christians are, are being kicked out of synagogues, 
They're being run out of town. Uh, their ability to earn a, a livelihood has been uh, severely curtailed by the Jewish religious leaders. While at the same time, they're being arrested. They're being jailed. They're being relegated to forced labor. They're being tortured. They're being used as uh, human lamps dipped in oil and lit on fire uh, to decorate and to light the, the patios of the Roman rulers. They have been sawed in half, fed the lions in the Colosseum, all at the hands of the Romans. And one of the, the churches that has received this letter from the Apostle John is the church of Smyrna, which we just read about. And based on what we have read, we recognize that the Christians living in Smyrna were definitely undergoing persecution for their faith. Now, Smyrna was an amazing town. It had a, a, this incredible natural harbor. Uh, the wind uh, blew from uh, the west to the east, which gave the city almost a, a tropical climate. It was a city of about 250,000 people. To give you an idea of how many people that is, if living water was the center and you took a string six miles out uh, towards Hershey and drug it down towards Middletown and High Spire, went across the river and uh, got just this edge of, of Mechanicsburg and then kind of headed up through Susquehanna Township and then up along Blue Mountain here, and you had this circle, that's the number of people, about 250,000 people live in that area. Uh, it was what we know today as a, a master plan community. Uh, they didn't just throw the city up. They actually had uh, plans. And so what they did was they, they developed the this, this city in a symmetrical form uh, in, in the, the shape of basically a crown and all of the streets and, and the buildings uh, represented the crown. So it's this incredibly beautiful place. Now, the city had been destroyed in 600 BC, and it had been left uh, for ruins for about 300 years until Alexander the Great came along, and he ultimately rebuilt the city, and that's when this whole master planning thing came about. And so the city was known as the crown of Smyrna or the, the crown of Asia. And the people were extraordinarily proud of the fact that their city had been destroyed and had been rebuilt and had become back to life. Smyrna had temples and theaters and endless groves of trees which produced this uh, aromatic gum that's called myrrh. It's what the the uh, Magi brought to Jesus uh, at his birth. It's what uh, fragrances and spices that would have been used to anoint Jesus' body. And all of this would have come from Smyrna because they basically had the corner of the market. And it's to this city that had died and rose again and to the Christians who were suffering there that Jesus says in verse 8, And to the angel of the church of Smyrna write, The words of the first and the last who died and came to life. Now, the, the term first and the last, they, they're an all-encompassing term that's designed to uh, 
give you a picture of Jesus' sovereignty, that he is over all things, that he's not only in control of the past, which would be the first, but he's in control of the present and ultimately the future, which would be the last. And if that's not enough, Jesus reminds them that he has died and he has come back to life, that not even death could stop him. He had then and continues today to have the power to bring back to life that which has died. Now, now many of us that are gathered here right now, and no doubt some that are at home watching, know how encouraging that, that single sentence must have been to a group of people who were facing persecution and sufferings because most of us in the past have had experience with suffering in some capacity for being a Christian. Perhaps you lost a relationship with a, a boyfriend or girlfriend or a spouse or a parent or maybe a neighbor because of your commitment to Christ. Maybe you have been ridiculed at school, perhaps overlooked at work, maybe passed over for participation in a club or a sports team because of the Christian values that you hold. Perhaps you are a Christian uh, business owner or a salesperson, and, and, and maybe you have lost a client or killed a deal because your values conflicted with the values of the other person. Maybe you have been excluded from something that was important to you simply because you're a Christian. And sadly, persecution and sufferings don't just come from non-Christians towards Christians. What I've come to discover is persecution sometimes comes from Christian to Christian. We don't believe exactly about some secondary theological issue or perhaps social issue with, a, with another believer. And as a result, we've been treated poorly by that person. We've been talked about behind our backs. We've been made to, to feel unwelcome, or perhaps cast out of their lives. Whatever reason, we have suffered in some capacity for our faith. Now, I realize that those examples that I just have given us do not come close to the level of persecution that many of our Christian brothers and sisters around the world experience on a daily basis. Because here in America, it is rare to lose your job because of your Christian faith, let alone lose your life. But I would do you a great disservice if I didn't tell you that those days, those days are coming. The privileged status that American Christians have enjoyed in this country is coming to an end. There is a rising tide 
of secularism and neo-paganism that is growing in America. And along with it is a rising tide of intolerance towards Christians. You know, when you talk about those who are tolerant, what I have discovered is those who pride themselves in their tolerance are perhaps the most intolerant people on the face of the planet. And we have seen this intolerance and hostility towards Christians already in the halls of academia and in the media. It is beginning to show itself in the human resources departments of many companies and some of which are headquartered right here in central Pennsylvania. It is rearing its ugly head in local and state and federal government. And it has definitely shown up within the branches of our military. You see, our, our postmodern society, like that of the first century, see Christians as a clear and present danger. You and I don't see ourselves as that. But the secular portion of our world definitely sees us as that. And they, like the ancient Jewish religious leaders and the secular leaders of the Roman Empire of old, will do whatever it takes to scare us, to silence us, to limit our influence, and to strip away our freedoms that they see are an impediment to their secular humanistic agenda. So, what are we to do? What are we to do when we lose our job because we prayed before a meal in the lunchroom? Or we had a Bible on our desk in our office? Or we went out to lunch with a coworker and they asked us about our Christian faith and we shared the gospel with them and they were offended by what we shared. What are we to do when our employer requires that we embrace as good and proper that which God's word says is sinful and wrong? What do we do when our ability to engage in the marketplace is limited because the government doesn't like what we believe? What are we to do when our educational opportunities are threatened or our property is taken away or we find ourselves in jail or, or we're faced with a choice of denying Jesus or embracing death? What? are we to do? I believe we find some of those answers in Jesus' words to the Christians living in Smyrna. And as I looked over this passage, I, I came up, hopefully God gave them to me, but three truths that help steady and comfort us when we are confronted with suffering for our faith. I'm going to give them to you up front. We're going to briefly go over them. Uh, here's the first one. Jesus 
He is with us in the midst of our suffering. We don't suffer alone. He is intimately aware of the suffering. Number two, for Christians, suffering doesn't last forever. There's, there's a limited time frame. That limited time frame may end actually at the moment that we draw our last breath, but it is a limited time frame. Number three, Jesus rewards us for our faithfulness in the midst of suffering. That, that when we remain faithful to him in the midst of suffering, there is a reward. Sometimes that reward is earthly. More times than not, that reward is in eternity. Look again at verse 9 of Revelation 2. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. Now, the operative phrase, operative phrase in this sentence is, I know your. The Greek word that has been verb that has been translated here, know, is grammatically constructed in such a way that it means that Jesus is actively and intimately aware of what has happened to us in the past and is happening to us now. That word doesn't mean that, that Jesus just possesses some kind of superficial knowledge about what's going on to us. Instead, he knows exactly what has happened to us. He knows exactly what is happening to us now, and he knows exactly what is going to happen to us in the future. It's the kind of knowledge that Jesus talks about in the Sermon on the Mount when he discusses the issue of prayer, and he says this, and when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words, don't be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. You see, Jesus intimately knows what you and I are going through. But there's more. The your that Jesus uses here in Revelation 2.9 isn't the plural your like y'all. It's not that. It's singular. Jesus knows the suffering of each individual Christian and what they're experiencing. He's not just knows the, the overall suffering of a church or a body of Christians. He knows what's going on in individual lives. And as it is true for those who were in Smyrna, so it is true for us. That Jesus is intimately aware of that which we are going through. He knows our individual struggles. He knows our individual pain. He knows our fears. And he is with us in the midst of them. Jesus is there when we don't get a promotion at work because we're unwilling to work on Sundays because we want to go to church. Jesus is there when we're unwilling to lie for our employer because 
If we didn't lie, then, then he would be upset with us, but we don't lie, so we suffer. I can remember times when I was, was working back at AMP and we would have a, a, some kind of quality issue that was going on and the temptation was to kind of cover up the quality issue because it really wasn't that big a deal. Something was out of tolerance by, you know, three one-thousandths of an inch and the tolerance was really two one-thousandths of an inch. And, and you know, the pressure was, don't, don't tell anybody. Nobody needs to know. But the problem that I had was, I knew. I was a Christian. God knew. But the temptation was, the pressure was, Mike, don't tell them that. Why? Because, Mike, that will cost us $50,000 to replace all those things. Jesus was there when we weren't chosen for the club or the team because of our faith. He was there when our friend or our sibling or our parent or our spouse rejected us because we would not affirm them or join them in, in a behavior that goes against God's word. And Jesus was there when other Christians reject us because of our past sins and failures. Even though we've confessed them, even though we've repented of them, even though we've paid the price for them. You see, Jesus sees it all, and he covers it all. All of the pain, all of the rejection, all of the suffering, all of the abuse, all of the shame, and he does it through his grace and mercy. And these struggles, these challenges, these sufferings that the Christians in Smyrna are facing, Jesus understands that they are not light and they are not momentary and they are not easy. Jesus describes them as tribulation and poverty. Now, the tribulation that's mentioned here is a whole lot more than just a little bit of affliction. It means that, that they are living under great oppression and grief and pain. It's the same Greek word that's used here for tribulation that is used in John 16 when uh, childbirth is being described. Now, take it from me. I am an expert in childbirth. I have, in the past, participated in two childbirths. Actually, uh, I was more spectator than participant. Nonetheless, for me, it was great tribulation and great anguish and great pain, so much so that I was on the verge of passing out during both of the births of our sons. And I'm not the one that's doing the pushing or the stretching, I get all of that. But I get the tribulation in childbirth thing, even though I am a man and I am a wimp. Now, 
Just as the tribulation in verse 9 is more than affliction, the poverty that Jesus is talking about is much more than simply struggling for money. These people were poor. And it's the kind of poor that the comedian Michael Jr. talks about in his comedy routine when he says, when I was growing up as a kid, we weren't even poor, we were po." because we couldn't afford the two other letters in the word. It's the kind of poverty that the theologian, Paige Patterson, says, denies even the basics of life. And why are are the Christians in Smyrna, why are they so poor? Because a direct outplaying of oppression is always poverty. When there is heavy oppression, poverty flows from it. And if tribulation and and poverty weren't enough for these folks to be afflicted with, they're also slandered by people who claimed that they knew God, and that was the Jews. Now, Now, what is the slander of the Jews towards the Christians? Well, the Jews would come along and they would falsely accuse the Christians of being cannibals. Now, why in the world would you accuse Christians of being cannibals? Because during the Lord's Supper, Christians ate the body of Christ and drank the blood of Christ. They were falsely accused of of sexual immorality. Why? Because Christians had this thing that was called a love feast, which was basically a meal that occurred after a worship service. They were falsely accused of being atheists because they would not worship the Roman deities. They were accused of disloyalty because they would not render themselves tribute to Caesar. They were even falsely accused of destroying the foundation of family because they called people who were not directly their siblings brothers and sisters. Yet in the midst of the oppression and the poverty and all of the slander, Jesus is with them. He understood what they were going through. He intimately knew their pain. He understood their doubt. He knew their fears. And he intimately, he knows our pain. And he knows our doubt. And he knows our fears. And he can do that. Why? Because Jesus himself suffered oppression and injustice. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crucified for our sins. Now, you would think that present oppression, poverty, and slander would be enough. You think like, okay, I'm good. I've suffered plenty. Please don't bring me any more suffering. But that's not the case Jesus tells these Christians in Smyrna, more suffering is coming. That's the bad news. Here's the good news, though. He tells them that that suffering is going to only last for a limited period of time. Look at the two, first two sentences 
in uh, verse 10. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. Wonderful. That you may be tested, and for 10 days you will have tribulation. And when I look at this, this tells me that for the Christian, suffering doesn't last forever. Now, here we discover two important things about this. First of all, number one, the true source of our suffering and our oppression isn't other people, even though it seems that way. You see, the true source of our suffering, the Bible teaches us, is from the evil one. Satan and his minions, and that's not the little yellow guys on Despicable Me. It's the nasty little evil people that hang with Satan, the, the demonic, uh, Pastor Ben, help me with a word. I'm trying to think. What are the devil's helpers? Demons, demons. Thank you very much. Drew a blank there for a second. Glad to have Pastor Ben and Laura here to help me out. And what this tells us then is if our enemy is the evil one, we're not really engaged in an earthly battle. We're ultimately engaged in a spiritual battle. In Ephesians 6, the Apostle Paul, he affirms that. This is what he says. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Folks, we need to remember that. Our enemy is not other people. Our enemy is the evil one. Those who are hurting us are simply pawns in a cosmic battle being used by the evil one as he desperately fights a war which he has already lost but is unwilling to give up. And that knowledge, that should help us in the midst of the struggle. It should help us to, to pray for our enemies because they, like those who nailed Jesus to the cross, they really don't know what they are doing from a, from a cosmic perspective. They may have some kind of earthly agenda going on, but they don't understand what is happening from a cosmic perspective. These folks, they are lost. They're being used by Satan. And they are headed to a Christless existence. And as ones who have repented of our sins and received Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, our ultimate end is eternal glory with God in heaven. And those who are doing the persecuting, theirs is eternal suffering with Satan in hell. That's not just a little struggle. That is an eternity of suffering. You see, those of us who are opposed to us are not the enemy. They're folks who are desperately in need of a savior. And sadly, many of them have absolutely no idea what they're doing. Now, the second thing that we learned from verse 10 is this. 
that the suffering for our faith that we are experiencing, it has an end. It won't go on forever. We get that from for 10 days you will have tribulation. Now, what in the world does that actually mean? I read that for the very first time. I'm like, I, I don't, is this days? Is this symbolic? What is this? And you start working your way through some commentaries and, and you find that, that nobody really has a, a great explanation for this. They, they, there's, no one, there's not a consensus going on, but there, there are two basic schools of thought that are here. The first one is this. Some theologians believe that these 10 days, the number 10, represents completeness in the decimal system. Okay, so the decimal system's got 10 digits, 10 days, it's completeness, completeness in the decimal system. And so it's symbolic to express that, that these folks' suffering is going to be ultimately completed. And, you know, with a shout-out to Goldilocks and, and the three bears, the, the suffering isn't going to be too long. It's not going to be too short. It's going to be just right. That's what's going on here, okay? Whatever suffering that, that God allows to come into our lives, as hard as it is, these theologians are saying, well, the suffering is going to be just the right amount of time. Now, I'm here to tell you that's the pleasant explanation. Let me give you the unpleasant explanation. Explanation number two. Some theologians believe, based on ancient Roman uh, inscriptions and, and documents that they found, that the 10 days is the period of time that the first century Romans kept you in jail before they fed you to the lions in the Colosseum. You see, the Romans didn't want to deal with the prison population problem that we have. Their idea of, of solving the prison population issue wa, was not to leave people out. They just took you after 10 days and they put you in the Colosseum. And they played with you, with lions or gladiators. Now, whatever the meeting is, here's the upside. Whether our suffering for our faith ends while we're still alive or our suffering for our faith ends with our physical death, Jesus ultimately will reward us for our suffering. Look at the last sentence of verse 10. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. You see, we are told that Jesus rewards us as we are faithful in the midst of suffering. Now, crowns were a big deal in Smyrna. I mean, the city was known as the crown of Smyrna, the crown of Asia. Everybody was trying to earn crowns in Smyrna. Now, these are not the crowns that you and I typically think about, which would be royal crowns, like you get the picture of, of the casket being led through the streets of, of London with the, with the the, the crown of the queen on top of her cap. That's not the crown that is being talked about here. Jesus is talking about the victor's crown. This is the, the crown that, that athletes would receive in, in Greece when they, they ran a, a race and they won, which would have just been like a laurel around your head. It's the crown that was given to, to soldiers when they had overcome uh, their adversary. And the Christians living in Smyrna, 
They, they would have got this point because they were people who didn't get crowns. They were the persecuted ones. They weren't allowed to participate in these things. But the idea that the God of the universe would reward them with crowns was a beautiful thing. And it reminded them that if they were faithful to the end, that even death would lead to life. And that, brothers and sisters, is the ultimate message for us today. Living for Jesus, it should be hard. If you're here today and your Christianity involves getting up at 8 o'clock on Sunday morning, taking a quick shower, jumping in your car, sliding here into some seats, singing a couple songs, listening to one of us flap our lips for a little while, and then going home, and that's the extent of your Christianity, you're probably not going to suffer for your faith. But if your Christianity is real, if it radically impacts your life, if it it causes you to to say no to things that you want to say yes to, if if your Christianity comes along and it forces you to, to love others like you would want them to love you, If your Christianity has you turning the other cheek, confessing your sins to one another, then you know how hard Christianity is. You know that that it comes with suffering. When when a a relationship implodes and and you recognize that, that you have a role in it and that you need to own your crap or your garbage and you need to apologize That's when Christianity becomes real. When temptations come and we want to cave to them and and the Holy Spirit reminds us, you do not want to do that. And we deny ourselves. That's when Christianity is real. When it's a little game about coming to church on a Sunday morning, that is not real Christianity. Real Christianity always comes at a price. And what makes it even more different, difficult, is even when we do all of these things, and we want to deny ourselves, and, and, and we do all of these things to, to follow the Lord, we still suffer. And that makes it hard. Like, God, I don't get this. I've been trying to be faithful. I've done all of these things. And yet you've allowed this suffering to come into my life. That is the reality of Christian. And as a result, when Christians are faced with with suffering for their faith, it's enough to make even the strongest follower of Christ want to give up. You see, the beauty of all of this, though, is we don't have to do any of this on our own. Because that moment that we repented of our sins and received Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, his Holy Spirit took up residence inside of us. And that same Spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead is alive inside of you and inside of me. And Jesus has, has, has done the heavy lifting. 
He, he's lived the life that you and I were called to live, that we are incapable of living. Jesus has died the death that you and I deserve. And his life, his death, his resurrection and his ascension has covered our sins and has justified us before the God of the Father in the universe. So we don't have to be perfect in the midst of the suffering. It's okay to be sad. It's okay to be, be, be angry. It's okay to, to not always be joyous. There are going to be times when we complain. And it's certainly okay to want the struggle to come to an end. But in the midst of all of that, what is Jesus looking for? He's not looking for perfection. He is looking for faithfulness. He's looking for the one who when they get knocked down, they just simply get back up. And they take it on the chin time and time again, trusting that Jesus is faithful to the end. And through it all, we hold fast to him in the midst of the difficulty, remembering his words in Matthew 5. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad. For your reward, it is great in heaven. May you and I persevere. May we be faithful in the storms that are coming, knowing that our reward while it may not be on this earth, it is great in heaven and it lasts for all eternity. Let's pray. Lord God, Father, we come before you this morning and uh, we're reminded.